0: Alan Kring Productions in association with Emergent Light Studio presents The Illinois State Collegiate Compendium Academic Lecture in Business and Economics This is Business Finance FIL 240 for Autumn Semester 2023 Today Financial Markets Before we do that as is usually the case. We have a look at the numbers, and I, of course, am going to ask you for your judgment. Madam, is this a bull or a bear day? Uh, a bull? Bull. Yeah, be emphatic. It is indeed a bull day. It is not a spectacular day, by any means, the Dow and the um, the Dow and the S and P 500 are up by about the same. Well, they're up, up exactly the same, and the Nasdaq is up a little more. But it, 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 it's definitely a bull day, but it's not just an awesome bull day. I shouldn't complain though much about that. Uh, now, and looking at other numbers, crude oil is still sitting in that trading range toward the upper end of the 72 to 82 but it's not anywhere where you're going to see gas prices do anything uh... really dramatic however i again and this is part of what we look at in terms of these markets is that in a case like this crude oil definitely its price affects gasoline prices so this is uh, what you 're seeing here is a uh, commodity price as opposed to what we 're talking about today that are financial markets, but this is kind of like a cross between the financial world and the commodities world and a commodity like oil it has a lot of uses and so The price might not do anything, which you see here, but you could still see the price of gasoline change, and that would be based upon the relative uh, demand and for different things that could be used from gasoline. One of the things that's keeping oil, in general, somewhat on the lower side, especially from where it was a year ago or two, uh, is the lack of demand for gasoline it 's kind of an unusual thing we expected after the lockdown finished, everyone would get back in uh, a car and go everywhere we 're just not seeing it and even this summer, which is one uh, the time when gasoline demand would be the highest, wasn 't there too much uh, so that has been one of the th- uh, one of the factors that has kept crude oil from going up in price ultimately over a long period of time you 're going to see a dynamic happening. As it becomes harder and harder for us to draw new oil reserves out of the ground, it will be more expensive. We'll have to go to places to get, to get new oil reserves that are costly and environmentally damaging, of course. But at the same time, you'll begin to see more alternatives coming online. Electric cars have been yeah, and probably will remain a, a disappointment at least for a three in the three to five year range and other types of uh, all, uh, cars that use alternate energy uh, sources will come online so that will pull back eventually the demand for Oil for gasoline. Airplanes use enormous amounts of jet fuel and they will remain a major de, uh, source of demand for crude oil for another three, four decades, probably even more than that. So it's going to be kind of a back and forth here. Some uh, things, are, some new technologies, are going to take demand off oil others will leave that demand in place for oil. Another place where oil is used, it actually is still used for a, a number of uh, electricity, electric generating power plants and that will begin to ease off over the next 30 to 40 years in your lifetimes as we bring fusion online which will be awesome I mean just absolutely awesome but we'll also use other sources for uh, electricity as well and they'll get better solar energy again it's not spectacular it's nothing really to write home about yet it'll get better wind turbines Probably never a major resource, especially when we get into lower wind speeds in places where now we can get lots of turning power off the perturbance that will go away. Now, coming over here, gold, it's had a little bit of a spike, but it's nothing spectacular. Silver, another commodity, it had a little spike today, and then it's sort of quieted down. Okay, 10-year bond, that's a yield. Yield is down 2.5 basis points. Okay, that means that the price is up. That would mean that there is demand for bonds. Money is going in and buying bonds. Also, interestingly, as we saw last week, money is going into equities. So there is sort of, you know, money is coming off uh, off the sidelines, and it's going into financial investments. Stocks, bonds. It's nothing huge yet, but it looks like there's More and more positive sentiment out there that we're going to do okay. We're not going to have a recession, which is good news for you. Going into your last year and a half of college, internships, jobs, we'll have a decent economy. Especially rolling into 2024, that can shape the politics of the election year uh, as well. Coming over here, Tokyo had a darn strong day. Notice that it surged at the beginning. That's information pouring in. Once that information was there, there wasn't any other information to move it up or down, so it just drifted from there for the rest of the day. Now London had a strong pull upward later, but then it the bears just took over there and it dipped into negative before it finished a little bit positive, nothing. That's almost meaningless, 0.07%, hardly anything there. Now, I keep saying these things over and over again as you, it helps you get used to looking at the numbers the way a professional would, and you begin to talk in that same kind of way. But as you can see, London got kind of sour there. It had a bounce right at the end, but it was still a little sour all uh, there in the ending part. Now, if we look over here, what happened to my spark charts? Let me try that again. No spark charts. Oh, there they are. Oh, this has been actually kind of an up and down day. Look at that. The bears and bulls have been pulling back and forth, smacking each other around all day. And the Dow showed that too, the NASDAQ. wonder what the heck that's all about. Huh. Looks like it started out fairly positive, and then it had a bear pull, and then the bulls came back, and then the bears came back, and now the bulls are back in business. Looks like we might finish on an up note, though, so there's that. Now I'm going to show you a couple of screens of stocks, and this is what we're going to learn about these numbers in this class. You might as well see them in real life before you see them in the academic sense. Here we go. Anyone got a company? Let's have a look here. Let's look like at Uber. A lot of you use Uber. Well, not a lot, but quite a few people. Okay, now, first things first. Bid and ask, very tight. Forty-four ten is what you would sell a share of Uber at and 44.11 is what you would buy it at. So that's a very tight bid-ask spread, only a penny. Uh, Trading volume, interestingly enough, is very thin today. We're well more than halfway through the day. On an average day, 22 million shares trade, but so far today, only 7 million. So it's thin. Now, as you can see, Uber is near its 52-week high. If I look over here, one year, you see how Uber had a climb a few months back. Oh well, this spring, and so that was its peak right there at about forty nine forty nine, right in there, and it's come off that peak, but it doesn't seem to have any interest in going making another run from it for it. Although I have to say that, if you had bought here at twenty two ninety four last uh, that would probably have been about December I would say maybe January you would actually even now you'd be up almost 50 well more than 50 percent so I mean that was a good that would have been a smart investment I wouldn't rely on that coming let me show you something here first of all notice Uber does not pay a dividend Uber is losing money it's EPS, earnings per share, is negative. So that means earnings per share is the total earnings divided by the number of shares. So in order for EPS to be negative, the earnings would have to be negative. So it's, un- it's not making a profit now. If a company isn't making a profit, it will not report, you will not see a PE ratio. So that's why you see the NA there for Uber. However, if you look at the beta, beta is telling us that this is a somewhat risky investment it's not uh, you know it's not a I, it, oh okay it's one of those yeah i mean it looks it's it's paid off in the past but in financial markets past is not prologue just because it had that nice surge earlier this year doesn't really mean that it's going to have anything at this point in time after this. Oh, let me take another company here. Pull another one up. Uh, I've done Procter and Gamble. I think I did. Oh, let me do Johnson and Johnson, J and J. Okay. Now it's your turn. Just this, just for the fun of it, madam. Safe or risky stock? Safe. Yes. I mean, it's only about half as risky as the market. Remember, the market is a beta of 1, 1.00. This is 0.54. So in other words, in a well-diversified portfolio, Johnson & Johnson would swing, on average, only about half as much as the market does, on average. So it's, not a, it's a definitely a safe stock. And one of the reasons it's safe is the fact that it is a company that makes... Very necessary or basic kinds of medical stuff and uh, quasi-cosmetic, uh, but medical stuff. And that's always going to be uh, in demand. So there's not, like, it's not like Johnson & Johnson is going to go away anytime soon. Now, the P.E. ratio is, would you say that this is just a, is this undervalued or overvalued? Um. Or about, about? properly valued value? yeah it's uh, it's around 30 so that means that it's not it's a little higher than 30 but that's pretty meaningless this is pretty much a pussycat cat stock uh, oh well that's interesting it's right about in the middle of its 52 week high range low over the last year has been 150 bucks, its high has been 182, 181 bucks. And right now it's kind of parked right in the middle of that. So whither goes this stock from here? It's obviously a sound investment. It's a safe investment, but so you're not going to get anything spectacular. And also notice that you get a nice uh, dividend. 2.86%, in other words, is 2.86% of $163.91. That's just simply saying, okay, I throw $163.88 at this stock, and I hold it for a year. I don't know what its capital gain. I don't know how much the stock is going to rise or fall, but I do know that I will earn, well, I don't know it, but I have a good reason to believe that I will make 2.84% on it just because I'm going to get a check for $4.76 for investing $163. That's what that's telling you in in words. And I can give you, I'll give you the formulas for all these different ratios. That comes a little later in the course. I mean, the ratios, you know, you need to be able to calculate them or something like that. But they don't mean anything unless you can say, well, what does this say in real, in plain English, in common language? Now, one more. Does anyone have a stock in mind? None of you are investors? Huh. Let, me, let me put this one up here. Well, let's look at Exxon. That's Z-X-O-M, ExxonMobil. Whoa, that's a pretty wide bid-ask. Of course, that $101 stock, but still, that bid-ask, you would buy this stock, if you bought a share, it would cost you $101.24. If you sold a share of it, you would get $100.88. So that bid-ask spread is what? $12.24, $0.36. So if you bought a share right now, you would be in the hole 36 cents right away because you couldn't sell it for one hundred and one twenty-four. the best you could do for buying it selling it would be a hundred dollars and 88 cents so that's always going to be there so when you're buying stocks always keep in mind that there is that bid ask spread there so you're instantly and this is something that kind of rattles a person i buy i take a position i go long a stock and immediately I'm I've got a negative uh return just because it'll mark to the uh bid what I can sell it at once I've bought it. Now Exxon well isn't that interesting. It's relatively right in the middle, around one. So it's about it it will move up and down about a little more than the market. Not much. But look at that. That's undervalued. I mean, that's pretty serious. That's well below 30. So it's one of those things, yeah, I mean, I could try that as an investment. Now here's something, too. It pays a darn nice dividend. Uh, 3.39%, 3.35%. So, I mean... You know, whether or not the stock goes up in price or down in price, at least I know I'm going to get uh, a return for $101.04 of 3.35%. Now, what I'm going to show you next goes to part of today's lecture. It has to do with what kinds of investments you can make and also... more specifically, financial institutions. It's a little bit odd in some ways because there are some places where you can uh, put your money. And you would recognize these as being the kinds of places that you would expect to put money and get money, make money. Some of them are a little bit less traditional or less well-known. So, for example, you can put your money in a bank. A, you would probably be using a commercial bank. A commercial bank is just a place where in, uh, individuals, households, and businesses can put their money and it will be it will be kept there. And in some cases, you'll get some money, uh, some kind of interest on your money. In other cases, perhaps not. The one that most people think of a debit card. That's almost always, well not always, but it's almost always if you have a debit card with a traditional bank, that is called a demand deposit. That's a demand account. I, uh, you agree to be my bodyguard. All right. And I'll be your long lost pal you can call me Betty and I will call you Al or whatever the hell it is okay now I write you a check now I could give you a hundred dollars to protect my butt for a week okay and you probably do a terrible job for only a hundred dollars but there's that okay now I give you the hundred dollars I could give it to you in money that's highly highly liquid you can turn that into a burger immediately but I could also write you a check on my bank that's called a demand deposit and it is considered highly liquid as well simply because you can demand with that draft as we call it you can demand that money from the bank my money from the bank and they have to give it to you immediately with proper ID immediately so that is a highly liquid form of investment I put the money in there I don't make any off it course. but uh, and, Well, I got a toaster when I opened the account, so that was very good because I, it was one of those four bread toasters. And, okay, okay, try to stay on task. Okay, here. <laughs> but there, now interestingly enough, I don't actually have a bank. I have a credit union, another type of financial institution. So if I wrote you a check on a credit union, the credit union might give you the hundred dollars right away, but it doesn 't have to. most people don 't know that. Those are not checking accounts they 're not demand accounts. Credit unions are financial institutions. but what really is going on is uh, I am putting my money into something called a negotiable order of withdrawal account, a now account and i 'll get to be a more detailed in a bit. Technically, they don 't have to honor that for a, a couple of weeks. Technically, they probably will honor it as soon as you bring it in, but they don't have to. So you've got two different financial institutions. You've got banks, and those are commercial banks. And then you've got credit unions. That's another type of financial institution. What else is there out there? Well, there are some banks that are little retail operations, and then there are these mega things that are more than just a simple financial institution. They have all kinds of side gigs or gigs that are actually most of their business you've never even heard of. So commercial banks can come from small to large. There are other kinds of financial institutions too that you put money in and maybe you'll get money out. But there are some financial institutions that you probably will never interact with. Unless you work for one of them. And I I actually have some of my former students. Who work for these kinds of banks. Let me explain a little bit. Facebook. Now Facebook actually. uh, Sold stock. To become a public company. That's how you become public. Well one of the ways. You sell an initial public offering. An IPO. Now. That's an initial public offering. Get my markers out here. I always forget to get those out before I start. And then I'm wondering where they are in this. How can something be so... Okay, there. Okay. That's an initial public offering. That's when a private company goes public. It sells stock to the public. It must go through ungodly hurdles at both the federal SEC level and at the state divisions of security level to get qualified to do this. But it can do it. It'll go do an IPO. Now, after the IPO, a company can raise more money by selling stock. That would be called a seasoned offering. A seasoned offering. So in other words, there are... There are a lot of companies that are raise capital through seasoned offerings. They did an IPO years or decades ago, and they raise more money as they need it by selling stock, selling more of their stock. But an IPO. Let me focus on an IPO just to start this. It is a kind of financial institution, but when Facebook went public, you might have heard people say, "Well, I." I bought stock in the IPO from Facebook. No, they didn't, no. You see, an, an investment bank works, okay, let, let, me, let me do this. You, madam, are uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and I am an investment banker. You come to me as an investment banker and say, I should like to raise $2 billion by selling stock in my private company, Facebook. Good. So we work out the terms, price per share, to raise that much money, uh, all the details. We go through the process with lawyers and accountants. We file a document, which I'll talk about later, with the SEC. The SEC looks at it and says, (coughs) maybe some deficiencies, but eventually the uh, SEC will qualify the offering and I I can't remember whether I've already said this or not, the government never approves anything. It can qualify, and in this case, let's say that we go through the hoops and the uh, SEC in the state where you'll sell the stock, they qualify the offering, okay. Now, if this is, and I am your underwriter, I'm an investment bank, what that means is that I will work together with other investment banks in a syndicate and we will buy your stock. We do. The public, in general, does not buy the initial public offering. That's the investment banks that do it. Then we allocated. You know the uh, well. This part, this uh, bank and the investment bank in the syndicate will pick up. 30 million of it, this one 200 million, this one over here uh, 80 million, and we absorb that. Then we sell it to the public. Now a primary market is where the original stock is traded. That's our relationship. Once we have it, when we sell it to you, that's a secondary market. So the primary market, and then from there, it's sold into the secondary market. Everything that I show you on these screens for stocks, that's secondary market activity. There is the company here, what I showed you here, where that, what company was I showing? Was that J&J? Exxon, that, the company has nothing to do with that. You're buying it from someone else or you're selling it to someone else. Exxon isn't involved in this. You do not see primary markets. Unless you, madam, become insanely rich and you're one of my clients at the IB and i buy buying stock on your behalf or something like that, You're never going to see that market. This is just buying and selling all of this. Billions of shares traded every day. That's all secondary market activity. Now what I do as the investment banker is I'm going to buy the primary offering and then I'm going to hype the hell out of that. Uh, Facebook is doing its IPO. We'll pay those talking heads on the news networks, on the blogs and all that to pump that stock up. We'll pump it up and then you will have your shot at it. Boy, you better buy this, it's already going up in price. Buy it now, buy it now, and we'll sell the hell out of that stock to you in the secondary market. That's how it works. So, there's two different sides of the market, primary market, secondary market. The primary market is governed by the Securities Act of 1933. That's where all the laws are for primary markets. Now, this isn't just stocks. If a company borrows money, we say it issues bonds, and the underwriter buys the bonds, lends the company the money, and then we probably are going to sell those bonds to trust funds, mutual funds, or to individuals from there in a secondary market. Stocks and bonds work that way. Now, the secondary market is governed by the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. And I'll talk more about these at length. But for right now, that's all you need to know. See, before the 1930s, these were just insanely Wild West transactions financial markets were run by scammers, liars, cheats, dog beaters, con men, grifters, and it got ridiculous, and led to the crash of 1929, and led to the the party that had been ruling for the previous 12 years getting kicked out on its ass, but... That was, and so we've passed a lot of reforms and those have been reformed and amended many times to catch all kinds of loopholes and all that, but they're still imperfect. But know this, again, the basic thing is, primary markets are uh, where companies interact with uh, investment bankers. You'll hear, me, hear, you'll hear me use the term IB. And the book talks about them too. And then the secondary market is where traders interact with customers, like TD Ameritrade or Fidelity or uh, anyone, Robin Hood. Those are secondary market players. A little, one more thing about this. I'm going to give you three terms here. Agents, brokers, and dealers. Now, this is true of business in general. An agent represents the seller. No matter what I'm talking about, it could be this or it could be any kind of finance. An agent represents the seller. So if you've got a real estate agent, the agent would represent the seller. A broker represents the buyer. A broker represents the buyer. So if you work, okay, I've got a stock broker, and, well, he's working for you. You, the buyer. A real estate broker would represent the buyer of some real estate. Now, a dealer represents itself. So a car dealer... He does not represent the, the buyer or the seller of a car. He or she is playing for the house book, period. That's all. OK? Now, this will come up again. It used to be a long time ago, when I was really hot into the business decades ago, I would just throw all this at you and there'd be another 20 minutes of this. Now I'm not stupid. I don't don't just keep beating this because there's more behind this. But if I throw it all at you at once, I'm going to get you all kind of staring off into space. So that's all you need to know for now. So you call your broker. Well, I I should like to buy this stock. Okay, that broker represents you. He's going to get you the best deal possible. So we've got... Commercial banks, these are financial institutions. Commercial banks, credit unions, which are sort of like banks. We've got investment banks, which are, are banks but they're not really banks for you unless you're doing an IPO or something like that or a seasoned offering. And then you've got some other kinds of financial institutions, too. These are the, um, I can't remember, well, what would you call these? Brokerage houses. These are TD Ameritrade, Robin Hood, things like that. Brokerage houses. Now, some, some brokerage houses are retail if you came to me and said I really want a job could you, you know, tell me what to do if I wanted to work for TD Ameritrade ok where I would be able to send you would be to TD Ameritrade's retail division retail you know, you're, you're working with average everyday Joe's and Jane's on buying and selling stocks. That's retail brokerage. It's not a very fun place because you get a lot of people who should not be investing who are there, and then they're calling and screaming about why they're losing their asses. But there are also brokerage houses which are more, for lack of a better term, boutique houses. These are houses that you would probably never interact with. They're for smaller clientele of rich types of people. Very well-to-do. And I've, I, I've got some contacts in Chicago, especially with boutique houses. Uh, but, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a rarefied world, those boutiques are. And then you've got some... That are more, for lack of a better term, house. These broker, these brokerage houses work pretty much only for themselves. Like, for example, an IB, an investment bank, might have an investment house of its own for for doing its own trades. You know that that's something that's kind of fun to get into. And as uh, a matter of fact, I. Maybe six, seven years ago, I took uh, my s- finance students up to a, it was an IB, a regional IB up in uh, Chicago. There are a lot of these places. But uh, I took them up there, and we'll, we'll have one of our uh, one of our big wigs talk to you. And he came in, he talked about investment banking, but somewhere in his conversation it turned to investment. Uh, and I, you know, the students thought, well, this is cool. And now we're talking, you know, buying and selling stocks. And I was saying to myself, this is odd. And then it occurred to me, oh, he is actually one of the traders in their house investment firm. You know, for, this isn't for outside people. This is for that Brokerage that, that investment bank itself. What do they do with their money? Well, they invest in things, just like anyone, uh, just like any other big uh, financial player would. But they do it only for themselves. And he makes a lot of money doing that. I mean, Jesus, bonuses alone are more than I make in like ten years. It pisses me off. But anyway, let, let, let me go on here. Now there are other types of financial institutions too. They bring money in and then they invest it until they need it for whatever it is they actually got it for. Among those, one would be pension funds and life insurance companies. They are big dogs in financial institutions. I mean, they're, a pension fund, it's getting just unbelievable amounts of money every month from the people in the pension fund, you know, their, their contribution and all that. And then they have to do something with it. Well, what do they do? They invest it. The funniest thing is that there is a pension cri- fund crisis underway right now. It is staggering in how awful it is. You, won't, you've, you hear a little bit about it these days, five years from now, it'll be the crisis of the week, the month, the year, because you see these pension funds, when people put money in, if it's a defined benefit plan, those people are going to get, when they retire, a specific amount of money every month for the rest of their lives. Well, the problem is that most of these pension funds make, require very conservative investments far below the rate of return that would be needed to satisfy those payouts down the road. And this is, I mean, here in this state, it's a nightmare right now. And, uh, but at the same, as a matter of fact, it's so bad, I mean... You know, whether or not, I'm not planning to retire because if I retire, I'd be eating cat food. Uh, But it's, it's grim. And it's not just public funds. A lot of these private pensions have hidden overhangs of their future liabilities against the ability to pay them. It's a big problem. Okay, pension funds. Life insurance companies, they are a massive source of investments simply because they've got all this money that they are taking in for life insurance from you know, premiums being paid, but they have to do something with it. What do they do with it? They invest it. And they invest it, they're kind of special because a life insurance company does not want quickie investments. Well, we're going to uh, buy today and sell tomorrow or buy today and sell in a year or two years. Oh no, they're planning to they want that money out there for a very long time. Uh try try you madam. Do you, when do you plan to die? <laughs> Screw you, teacher. <laughs> you know you don't plan to die tomorrow. I mean you could, you know, you could walk out of here and train up uh <laughs> Or, you know, you could, you know, just walk out and an asteroid, could slam, you know, you could be pay dirt, uh, But we don't plan for that. You will probably live to about 110, possibly 120. You think that's ridiculous? Yeah. I know, your lifestyle, hell no. But, no, it, normally, you guys think you're going to live to 80 or 90. You probably actually will live. And that's a problem, though. People who live too long, you know, they... You know, medical care, you know, you know, d- you know, extra strong plug-ins so no one trips over their plugs and all that, like, you know, things like that. But you will live a long time. And, of course, that means that life insurance companies have to invest in things that will take a long time to pay back because they don't want that money back before you die on average. So that's why these life insurance companies are a great source for longer term investments, 20, 30, 50, 100 years kinds of things. And they have to be prudent, they have to be careful. Life insurance companies are a huge resource for for bonds, in other words lending lending money uh, on a long-term basis. So school districts will fund their bond issues through, life insurance companies pick those up. Life insurance companies pick up long-term bonds of government agencies, state and federal government agencies. Long-term, high-quality debt of corporations, you know, the AAA, good stuff, uh, investment grade. They are a vast ocean of investment uh, in the long term. A lot of it bonds, not really stocks at all, because stocks are generally riskier than bonds. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But So life insurance companies are a major financial institution. They provide something for, for the grieving families or estates when people die. But before that ever happens, they are providing capital to massive markets. Now before I go on, you may have... I want to clarify this term. I may have already brought it up, but I can't remember from one day to the next. Money and capital. I said, I'm pretty sure I said this. Money is short-term funds, a year or less. Capital is long-term funds, more than a year. Money is short-term funds, a year or less. Capital is long-term funds, more than a year. So in other words, when a company sells stock, it is raising capital, long-term funds. When, when, you, when you borrow money for a house or for a car, you're tapping the capital markets, markets of long-term funds. But if you borrow money for like six months, you're borrowing money. Like for example, PayPal, I, uh, people buy my, my artwork on credit. They pay like, sometimes they don't pay anything, but usually they pay maybe a fourth of it, and then they make, uh, they borrow from PayPal, which says, yes, I'll, you pay the balance over the six months. So PayPal is a money market. It's short-term funds. Corporations, the very, very large corporations borrow money for 30 days. That's a huge market. It's called commercial paper. And you don't need to write that down yet. I'll, I'll go back through this. But You say, well, yeah, giant companies you would recognize, they are constantly in the money market. All they want is a place to borrow for 30 days. And then there are a lot of companies, and as a matter of fact, one of my courses I'm teaching right now, before this one uh, every uh, day, is um, short-term cash management. Suppose you're a company. You've gotten in a payment of, let's say, your account's receivable, they, someone has paid $250,000. Well, you've got bills to pay, but you don't have to pay them today or even next week. So what they'll do is they will go into these money markets and provide the liquidity. So Microsoft might need to borrow $30, 000, $30 million for, a, uh, for 30 days. It will issue commercial paper, in other words, it will borrow that money and then the company that I was talking about, it might be one of the participants who buys some of that commercial paper from Microsoft. These are short-term markets and it's happening all the time, uh, day and night, to the tune of (sighs) hundreds of billions of dollars at any given time is flowing in these money markets. You might have even heard of money market accounts. At uh, brokerage like mine, if I have bailed out of a stock, the money from it, if there any, goes into a money market. So I'm earning a little bit of scratch until I find, uh, in other words, that money is going out there and being lent very short term to some place until I need it. And then it instantly comes back into my account if I want to execute another trade. So that happens too. Now it seems like I'm pouring a lot at you. I'll just keep doing this. It becomes more uh, obvious and more sensible how all this puts together as, as we go along in this course. But now, these are some of the major financial institutions. But I put off a couple. There are four more that I would mention. Two of them are very good things that you can join, and I'm even going to show you how here in a couple of minutes. Two of them, they're not your world. In fact, one of them is about as, how should I say, decent or righteous as dirt. But the two first that I will tell you about are ETFs. And mutual funds. ETFs, mutual funds. Now, here's how an ETF works. Uh, Let me try. Let me try it Sir, Standard Poor's 500. That's 500 of the largest companies in the world. Mm-hmm. Put them together, that's about two thirds of the value of the entire world. Do you have the money to buy all 500, a stock, buy stock in all 500 of those companies? Definitely. Have you looked under the seat of your car? <laughs> that's cool course you don't. I don't. I mean, geez, I don't well, I do know a few people who do but they're, they've got too much money for their own good. They need to be beaten. But did you know though that you could actually own the S&P 500 portfolio? Yeah, it's these animals right here. They're called ETFs. ETFs are essentially you're buying stock in a company that is nothing but that portfolio of 500 companies. Now I'll show you the one for this S&P 500. Oops, S-Y-T, S-P-Y. The spider. Now there are are a, a couple of different spiders. This is a spider. You buy one share of the spider, what you've really done is bought the S&P 500. A tiny, tiny, tiny piece of it. But you've got, it. imagine that. These are called ETFs, electronically traded funds, and there are for almost any kind of portfolio you could think of. Well, I'd like to own the Russell 2000, there's an ETF. How about the NASDAQ? Yeah, there is, about anything you'd want. And there are even sector ETFs. I'd like to buy the 10 biggest companies in the healthcare industry. Okay, there's an ETF for it. When you buy that share, it will parallel the movement exactly of that portfolio of stocks, the real underlying stocks. So, in other words, sir, you go into a finance singles bar. And they say, well, what are you investing in? Well, I've got a couple of shares of Uber you're going to go home lonely. But if you say, well, I'm long, the S&P 500. <laughs> you will go home with a friend. Know. Yeah. Seriously. Swipe left? I think not. You got it? Seriously. I mean, this is... And the great thing about this is you're going to hear me bitch and harp and moan and fart about portfolio diversification, owning a lot of different things. And then you have to manage it. That's what we call portfolio control theory. That's a whole course. And actually, it's constantly keeping an eye on the portfolio to make sure that the stocks are in the right balance against each other and all that kind of stuff. The ETF does that for you you it's always in balance among the 500 companies it's being watched 24/7 by the management of the ETF and here's something that you should always watch i strongly recommend ETFs if you want to get involved in investing in a serious way notice something the beta is 1 well That should make sense because you own 500 of the largest companies on earth. Basically, you own the world portfolio. So spank me Jesus, it's going to have a beta of one. Isn't that interesting? It's going to be the market. It won't go up more than the market. It won't go down more than the market. It will just follow, it won't follow the market. It is the market. Now, something you always want to watch out for, expense ratio. In other words, what is the management of this portfolio charged as a percent? This is decent. I try to stay under 0.30%. I mean, this is a well-managed, efficient portfolio run by professionals. Hell, you could be one of the people who does this. Matter of fact, it's uh, even in the last few months, I've had a couple of my former students talking about creating an ETF, a couple of different ETFs, starting their own little, you know, proprietary house and doing a couple of ETFs. It's a little dodgy, but there you are. It's it's sitting right there for you, and you know, it, it's, it's ratio. Notice right now. The S&P 500 is a little undervalued, it looks like. But $442, $443, something like that, that's, if you had, if someone said, I've got $500, what should I invest in? I say, until you've got some brilliant idea, or you've had a vision in the night that wasn't caused by excess Adderall, you, should probably do something like this. I mean, it's not sexy, it's not exciting, you're not running to the newspaper looking at you don't need giant trading screens. It's what you do when you get boring, is to do this. Let the pros who have access to far more powerful resources than you will ever have access to, let them do the legwork. I can't emphasize that enough. Like I told you the first day, in finance, in professional finance, we're not there to hop in and out of stocks and bonds and options and futures like rabbits. We're there for the long haul. And that's why these are more for when you've reached that point in your life where you say, enough of trying to do this myself. There are pros. And why do they do it? Well, because they make their money when you make money. It's direct. See that 0.09%? That's them winning and you winning at the same time. So there's one. Let me show you an in, uh, another one here. Um, you say, well, I've kinda, I, I don't like equities. As a matter of fact, you might actually be in a company where they have a policy that uh, they can't buy stocks, or if they're gonna buy stocks, they have to be really low beta stocks. Well, there's another one. Here's a bond ETF, AGG. Now, this ETF is so well-respected that it is the benchmark for all bonds and bond uh, portfolios. It's a, and look at this. Beta one PE ratio on Zooey! Holy cow. Well FTF fancy that scenario. But I mean that is okay. Moving along now, notice the expense ratio. This is even lower. There's a good reason for that. These are bonds. Bonds the trading, the cost of trading on bonds is very low. Keep something in mind. We always hear about stocks, stocks going up, stocks going down, IPOs, blah, blah, blah. The bond market is 10 times the size of the stock market. Well, why don't we hear about bonds? Because bonds are boring. They are not sexy at all. They don't pop up and down. They just kind of bleh, bleh. simply because bonds almost always pay. There's no, you're always going to get, at the end of a corporate or government bond, you're going to get your money back, your $1,000. Along the way, you're going to get your interest payments. There, there's nothing, there's no speculation. They don't rise and fall because a company has won big or something like that. They just sit there. They are as boring as I am on a quiet evening. They just don't do anything. So people don't think about bonds. News networks don't talk about bonds and make bond recommendations. They just sit there. But I'll be darned if you've got, you buy an ETF that's bonds You know it's going to be safe. It's going to be bonds. You know the management knows what they're doing, and the market respects this particular one so much that they use it as the comparator for all other bond funds. That's how good it is. Now, there are all kinds of ETFs. I was looking at one. I shouldn't show you this one. Do not, by the way, do not invest just because I say I tried it. If I was that good at investing, well, I'd still teach because I have nothing better to do except take care of my cats. It's an ETF of companies that are involved in legal research in using magic mushrooms to treat mental disorders. I mean, you want to talk about, I mean, I know people who sign up for that in a minute. No, you don't get to sign up for the clinical trials. But notice how cheap it is. It's one of those just, it's an ETF. It's a a collection of companies that are involved in this right now, under license from the federal government, or agencies of the federal government. And it's, it's an ETF. It's just another one of those out there. I'm going to look at one here. I've got to be a little careful. TQQQ. Nope. Nope. I'm not even going to recommend that. That's not even close. No, don't don't even pretend I didn't look at those, okay? You didn't see those. There are some that... There's a problem. You've got to be a little bit careful. Stay in the herd. There are ETFs that leverage. They do the stocks, but they also make it more risky and possibly a lot better paying by also entering futures markets or something like that. And those are, you, you, you can lose your shirt or make quite a bit of money. Off one of those leveraged ETFs recently, I turned about $50 into 200 in a couple of weeks. But man, if they had tra- taken a turn south, I would have taken a butt bath on those because they are leveraged. In other words, they're like, the bullwhip handle here is would be just the stock, but then when they take the extra risk of going out there with the derivatives contracts on that stock, suddenly you've got the tip of that bullwhip is where you're sitting. So let me not do that. Now another one is the mutual funds. Mutual funds are like ETFs, except that you are actually, Joining the company itself that, is cre- that forms the portfolio. And mutual funds can shift their investments. The ETFs, they have the same stuff in them at all times. If it's Standard & Poor's 500, they have the 500 stocks. A mutual fund can move around. So when you buy into a mutual fund, what you're buying is units of the fund itself. It's a kind of a, it, it, it's not an obvious distinction from an ETF, but when you, you are buying membership, you're buying ownership, ownership units. Like if you get a, go, go for a mutual fund that is like $10 a share, you, you put in $100, you own 10 units of that company, of that mutual fund itself. And uh, another thing is about mutual funds, If if some of the companies in the mutual fund issue dividends, you can just roll those dividends back into more units of the mutual fund itself. So instead of taking the dividend as a check, you could actually become a larger owner of the mutual fund and that's what makes them kind of popular. They're, well, they're very popular. A lot of companies that let you decide what you want for your investments, for your pension, they allow you to join mutual funds. Now, here's the thing about mutual funds. There are literally hundreds of thousands of them. A lot of them are owned or run by reputable brokerage houses. They, uh, like, you'll see Fidelity, The family of Fidelity Mutual Funds, the family of Investco Mutual Funds, the family of uh, PIMCO, whatever, uh, TIAA, these big houses, they put together a whole pile of different funds for different people. Now, what's going on with these different funds? Okay, one thing would be, you might say, well, I want to buy into a mutual fund that has international investments, okay? We've got a bunch of mutual funds, you can do that. Or I want to invest in companies that have, that are in the healthcare industry. Okay, there are a bunch of those. (coughs) Well, I want to buy into a mutual fund that has a beta of about .8. Well, you can do that too. They have, it's like a candy store, retail candy store of whatever you particularly would like to climb into. Well, I want to go into uh, a mutual fund that has growth stocks or a fund that has bonds. And that's a nice thing too. Once you're in a family of funds, you can move. Well, I was in a mutual fund that was 80% stocks and 20% bonds, but the economy is looking shaky. So you can move your portfolio over to mutual funds that have more bonds and stocks. That's something you can do too. So you have all of this room in mutual funds. And again, if you're, in reputable, if you're working with reputable mutual funds, they are pretty boring. They're not exciting. They don't whip up and down violently from day to day. It's You, know, you just join the fund, and you just sit there and watch it. And over a long period of time, If you're in a company and you are allowed to manage your own pension pension fund investments, you just put in mutual funds and you keep an eye on it. And you might shift it based upon your own personal judgment about the state of the economy. If the economy is booming, move to mutual funds that have high growth stocks. If you think the the economy is kind of sucky, you might move more 40% stocks, 60% bond mutual funds. And you can do that. So if you notice, it's a little bit different from how ETFs work. ETFs are stocks, but mutual funds aren't exactly stocks. They're, they're a fund, and you're investing in the fund. But the fund managers can move and shift the investments around more so. In an ETF, the fund is the uh, the, the portfolio is the portfolio in most cases. Okay, ETF mutual funds. There are two last. Ones. Now, you can join either of these. You could do that right now. One caution about mutual funds I should make. There are high load. This is the load. There are high, low, and no. A high load fund, you have to pay a fee to join the fund. A low load, you have to pay a fee, but it's pretty modest. A no load fund, You don't have to pay a fee. Now, if you are foolish, you'll go into a high load fund. You have to join for $500, but boy, is it worth it. Bullshit. I mean, that's, that's just marketing. Don't bother. Low load, even then, why would I pay to join a fund where you get to use my money? So no load funds, there are plenty out there that are highly reputable. They make people decent money and all of that. So keep that in mind when you're looking at mutual funds. You might stumble into one, you want to join, and then you, realize, you get yourself all hyped up, then you find out that they've got an entry fee. And you know that, that's one of those kiss my ass kinds of things as far as I'm concerned. Okay, last two. You will not participate in, well, I should, are any of you planning to become really big multimillionaires Yeah. We need to talk. I've got art. You need art. Okay? No, look. There are these financial institutions. There are two different flavors. A hedge fund and a private equity Hedge funds, they're both for very big players. The difference, well, one difference is you could probably get yourself involved in a hedge fund. Hedge funds, just as their name implies, one of the things they do is they hedge, they provide hedges for risk. Companies don't want risk. They really don't. That's especially if it isn't the risk of the company's core business. Like a trucking company, it's in the business of delivering goods. Trucking. Prices of diesel fuel going up and down decrease or increase the profit of the company. That's not what this this trucking company wants. It does not want volatility of diesel prices. That is not its core business. There are funds that will absorb that risk on behalf of companies. Hell, here in the Midwest, and all over the country, we are offering services to farmers, where if corn prices go down, they lose on the corn, but they make money on the hedge. If corn prices go up, they make money on the corn, but they lose money on the hedge. Ultimately, what that does is stabilize their income. They are no longer in the business of corn prices. They're in the business of growing corn. That's what hedge funds can help with. And with the diesel fuel, with a uh, uh, transport company, we can make a hedge that when diesel prices go up, they lose on their income statement but they win on the diesel uh, diesel price uh, futures. Conversely, if diesel prices go down, their profit goes up but they lose on the diesel speculation uh, hedge. In other words, they are no longer, their profit is no longer sensitive to fuel prices. That's what hedge funds can do. They can hedge Risks, But these are, you have to have a lot of money to be part of a hedge fund. It, it's, it's a huge thing. Now the scum of the earth, private equity funds. They are scum. They are in the business of providing short-term salvation and ultimately destroying companies. It, uh, good examples of that. Sears staples. A number of companies that were desperate for funds, a private equity firm will step in and say, we will save your bacon. You just have to do what we say. In the long run, though, very rarely does a company come out ahead. Ultimately, the company still goes bankrupt, but it loses everything to the private equity fund. I'll say more about that later. If you want to join one, let me know. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.